We are in part 11 of our Life of Worship series, and I entitled this morning's message, An Unstoppable Force. And I want to begin by kind of a heart concept or the central concept of really what this series of a Life of Worship is all about. And I would say it this way, the heart and goal of all of those who want to live a life of worship is that what we do and who we are is ultimately pleasing to God and what he wants. We need to do that in our hearts. We need to settle the issue. Why are we living? And those of us that want to live a life of worship, that's really what it means. It's that you crave with all your being that who you are and what you do is pleasing to God. Yet many of us have an awful lot of doubts. Many of us have an awful lot of fears about that process. Will we be what God wants? Will we finish well? Will we be soft in God's hands or will something or someone come in and ruin it all? I understand those fears. I have to face those fears all the time as a pastor of this church. I wonder all the time if in some way I'm going to fail that somehow I'm going to ruin what God is doing here, or that I'm going to ruin what God wants to do through my life. I understand those fears. We know that here in this life, we have three enemies, the Bible says, the world, the flesh, the devil. And indeed, the world does have attacks on us. As a matter of fact, it seems to be molding us more than we seem to be molding it. It's altered our priority list. It's altered what we find valuable. We've allowed it to push us around and change our attitudes and even how we view people and situations. And we wonder, some of us have a fear, how much has the world encroached and is it choking out what God wants to do? Will it ultimately win? Will it render us to the sidelines? Will we still remain believers in a secular culture? Others of us find that the most formidable enemy is ourselves. That we look and we say, listen, whether or not the world bends us or not, I'm my own worst enemy. The flesh within me, the old nature, the sin in me, the selfishness, the rebellion, whatever you want to call it, the compulsions, the addictions, the struggles, the temptations, drives, and desires. These things wage war in us so greatly, we wonder whether or not we're going to bail out. Will we survive as Christians? Will we be able to do what God wants to do through us? Or will we just ruin everything? Others of us fear the enemy. That somehow we're very aware that he's pretty good at what he does. He was able to take down so many people. Maybe he's going to take us down. Maybe the enemy is going to come in and he's going to lure us away and put something else more attractive in front of us. And it's going to completely derail our whole Christianity. You know, we're studying this life of David, yeah? I mean, we're going through Saul and all this stuff. And we look at the life of David and all three of those hit David really hard. Did the world go after David? Yeah, we pretty much realize that Saul tries to kill him for the majority of his life, right? Did David's flesh take a hit? Well, we know him most famously as what? His moral failure. Did the enemy seek to destroy David? Over and over and over again. 
That's why the fill in the blank is so important for you this morning. Listen to this very carefully. Because whether it's David or it's you, this is true. You cannot kill what God wants to live. You cannot kill what God wants to live. When I finished this message last night, I had two people waiting to talk to me. And this one gal came to me and she said, I was an alcoholic and I drank myself to death. As a matter of fact, I ruined both my kidneys and I was on a list to get a new one. I had realized that I came to the end of my rope and I turned over to God and said, God, if you want to take me home, I get it. I ruined what you gave me. I drank myself to death. If you wish to give me a kidney, I would like to try again, but it's completely up to you. The doctor said by the time she arrived and the kidney arrived for her, she was within 24 hours of death. For practical purposes, she tried to kill herself and it didn't work. The next lady that was waiting right after her said, I was driving down I-5 and somebody went in front of me, and I ended up going into the median to avoid them. I rolled my car, completely demolished it. It was upside down, I had to get life flighted out, and all I did was break a couple ribs. And they both looked at me and said, Lance, when you say you cannot kill what God wants to live, I'm living proof. Intriguing. I'm sure you have a story just like that. Would you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18, 1 Samuel 18, 1, page 204 in the Bible's handed to you. We're about to see that if God wants David to be king, guess what's going to happen? David's going to be king. 1 Samuel 18, 1, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and didn't let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Wow, that's weird. It's almost like Jonathan knows something about David's future. It seems that he knows something that Saul doesn't know, and he knows something that even David doesn't know. What does he know? That if David is to be king because God wishes it, then nothing on earth will shut it down. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we lift up our hearts to you and we ask that you would train us and teach us and fill us with faith, trust, and hope in you. That you are the great God, you are sovereign, and our lives of worship reflect that. That, Lord, that we are all about you and we have so many reasons to doubt ourselves, and rightfully so. What we must not do, Father, is doubt you. May you be praised in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's see what it has to say. Let's kind of go through it line by line and figure this one out. After David had finished talking with Saul, why was David talking with Saul? It was the big story we focused on last week. Anybody remember last week's story? David and Goliath, right. So we know this famous story. David just won this massive victory for Israel, a rather miraculous victory, if you remember it. And so he finished up by cutting off the giant's head, brings it to Saul, says, look, Saul, I told you. He was messing with God, 
God's not going to accept that. And so it really wasn't about me. God had the victory today. And look, here's his head. When they finished talking about that, back in his tent, surrounded by his men and his sons, of which we know his oldest son's name is Jonathan, it says this, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Now, from that day, Saul kept David with him and didn't let him return home to his family. Remember, prior to this, David had another job. He was at home, living at home, being a shepherd in the fields, and he would only go to the palace periodically, like a part-time job, when Saul would have an evil spirit torment him. He'd play the harp for him, right? And then sometimes he would do some military work for him. But in general, he lived at home. From this moment forward, Saul calls David in full time to live at the palace. God has fully orchestrated how to get a man out of the fields and into the palace. But it talks a little bit more about Jonathan. Look at the next line because it repeats it again. And Jonathan made a covenant, a promise, an oath, a contract with David. Because he loved him as himself. That's twice in two, two sentences. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing, gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Why is this man disrobing for another man? It's very odd. Why are you taking off all your gear? Right? He's taking off his robe and then his tunic and he's giving him all his stuff. Why are you giving all your stuff away? That's really kind of odd. Especially because we know who Jonathan is. Jonathan, can we all agree he's pretty amazing? Yeah, everybody remember through the story who this kid is? And I shouldn't say kid, this is a man right now. Jonathan is the one full of strength, power, courage, faith. Because he's the one that was able to take on things when his dad was too scared to do it. Jonathan was the one who would go in and launch this attack against the Philistines when no one else was willing to. And he did it single-handedly, if you remember that. He is the prince to follow up his dad on the throne. Make no mistake, this is always the plan. The king's son takes over for the king. Saul is king Jonathan is next in line. Now, next week, we're going to dive in very heavily to what all of this is going to cost Jonathan. It's going to cost him his future plans. What's he taking off? Let me ask you this question. How important are uniforms? Uniforms are crucial. Here's why. Let's say you're driving home today after church and a blue Civic with a guy with a ponytail, pulls you over and asks for your driver's license and registration. You're going to pull over? Absolutely not. No way. Right? Why? Because he doesn't have a uniform on. He's not a cop. So you're not going to pull over for just anybody that wants to see your license and registration. You wait to see the uniform because it's an identification code. What Jonathan just took off was his uniform. His uniform as what? The successor to the throne. He just took off royal garb and gave it to someone else. That's just not normal. You don't give other people royal attire because non-royalty is not allowed to wear it. The only reason you would ever do that 
is if you believed, they soon would be. What he's doing is an act of faith. What he's doing is an act of confidence. And what he in essence is saying is, I don't think I'm going to need these, Dave. You might need them more than I do. That's a big move. He knows something that we need to learn for our lives. Then it says this. Whatever Saul sent David to do, David did so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. Now, don't we like that? You're going to hear a couple times in this passage, and everything David did, God gave him success. We love those passages, right? We underline them in our Bible. Oh, God has plans to prosper me and all good stuff. And we love the success stuff. God's going to increase our boundaries and he's going to do this. And we always, I want God to make me successful. God, make me successful. God, make me successful. Quick question. Why? Why? What's the point? We, cause we really like stories like Joseph. Remember, no matter where Joseph was, if Joseph was in government, he was successful. If he was in prison, he was successful. No matter where he went, he was successful. Daniel. Taken out in captivity, raised to one of the highest levels in the whole Babylonian empire, whatever he touched, he was successful, right? Abraham, a man out of nowhere, made a desert prince, he's successful, ends up having this massive lineage of a whole people group. We love that because we think maybe that means God will make us successful. But why in the world would he do that? You go, well, he did it for them. You sure? Was it about them? As a matter of fact, every one of those men that I mentioned, it wasn't about them at all. Why did God make Joseph successful? It had nothing to do with a reward for good behavior. It had nothing to do because God loved him more than everybody else. Why did God make Joseph successful? Because he needed to prepare for Israel. He needed to get this guy over here because a famine was going to hit and he needed to provide a place where the Jewish people were safe. It had nothing to do with Joseph. Daniel. Why was Daniel raised up and be successful? Was that for Daniel? Had nothing to do with Daniel. Had everything to do with that a king was going to come through the Babylonian empire that needed to be invested in, trained, and demonstrated God so that he would allow the Jews to go back and rebuild Israel. Had nothing to do with Daniel. Abraham. Did it have anything to do with him? Nope. There was no reward for Abraham. There was a promise to Abraham. Comes and gets him out of nowhere. Why? So God would have a people group. So why did he make them successful? As a matter of fact, they're called a success. Really cost them everything. Everybody remember how hard it was to be? Abraham. Daniel, because we know them most famously for being thrown in lion pits, thrown into a well by your brothers because they wanted to kill you, thrown into jail because you were wrongfully accused of rape. Trust me, this is not the passages we think they are. Why would God want to make you successful? Is it so that we can waste more money on ourselves. If our desire and prayer is God make me successful and it ends with us, that is a rather poor prayer because we will die one day. 
if our desire to be successful is that God may parlay that into something for his kingdom, it's more accurate. But if you sign up for that, it's not about you. And you don't actually get to keep the success you're granted. Be very careful on what we want and what we pray for. Examine your motives. I have to examine mine, right? It moves on. Now, this pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. So David is winning the hearts of the military, winning the hearts of the nation. He's getting more and more popular. When the men were returning home after David killed Goliath the Philistine, the women came from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, joyful songs, tambourines, and lutes. This is what it's going to look like. Anybody remember the, uh, the, the TV of the ticker tape parades? You go through New York, there's all kinds of confetti and all this stuff in the air and everybody's cheering and shouting. There's a massive victory, right? This whole idea that our, our military did such a great job and there's this excitement of what it means for our future. That's what they're doing. And as a matter of fact, they're so excited about it, they want to praise the leadership that led the mighty victory. So they come up with a cute song. And this is what the song says. As they dance, they sang... Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. Now, what did they mean? They thought that was rather witty and encouraging, right? Because what they were saying is, our enemy should listen to this. Our leadership is so great. Whether you take one of them, he'll kill thousands of you. You grab another one, he'll kill ten thousands of you. You can't shut us down. God will give us victory. And they were so excited and joyful. But how do you think everybody else heard that song? It's funny, Saul heard it rather different. How did Saul hear it? Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. Okay? Everybody familiar with if there's any part of a song that you hate, they will play it over and over and over again, right? Then it sticks in your head and you can't get it out, right? What was the refrain? He says, they have credited David with tens of thousands, but me, only thousands. To him, it was a personal attack. He said, what more can he get but the kingdom? From that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. It's intriguing. Uh, How do you know if pride has gripped your heart? How do you know if you're starting to slip into paranoia? Well, there's a very easy test. How do you react when someone else is complimented in your presence? Susie has all kinds of, my wife has all kinds of brilliant parenting strategies. I saw one of these emerge recently. Uh, As our girls were growing up, Andy and Jillian, as my two girls were growing up, we noticed a pattern developing. That whenever Andy would come out, we were trying to encourage her as a little one to get dressed on her own, right? And kind of all get ready and go brush your hair and all that. When she would come out, we'd want to encourage her by going, Andy, you look so cute. Like, man, nicely done. And Jillian would go, what about me? Babe, you look cute too, right? Absolutely. Well, then Jillian would come home with a report card. And we'd see how well she did. We want to encourage that. So we said, Jillian, I can't believe... You did such a great job in school. You're doing amazing. And Andy would go, how about me? 
And now at first we'd kind of go, you too, babe. And we'd encourage it because this equality thing, you know, we don't want to make one feel bad and blah, 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 blah. And then finally we said, wait a second, something's not right here. And Susie realized this negative pattern, which was, why does it always have to be about you? So we came up with a line that we say to the girls all the time to burn it into their mind. A compliment for one is not an insult to the other. A compliment for one is not an insult to the other. They were immediately taking it as a hit against them. The question should have been, why can't you be happy for sissy? Why can't you say, yeah, you do look cute today and leave it at that. Why is it instantly back on me? It's funny because as much as that's a great parenting tool for little girls, I think it's a great learning tool for adults. How do I know that? Because every time somebody comes up to me and says, Pastor Lance, I heard the best preacher on the radio today. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've heard him. He's all right. Right? Have you noticed that Saul said, in essence, David's going to take my throne? The problem with that statement is what? It's not his throne. He will do everything in his power moving forward to hang on to what he believes is his. But it was never his in the first place. It was God's throne. Who God has on that throne is up to God. It's supposed to be for his glory. Yet... There's this protection of my stuff, my stuff, my stuff. And there's a wall that is put around. And Saul will go to extreme lengths to hang on to what's his. Are we the same way? Look at the next phrase, verse 10. This is a weird, weird story. Check this scenario out. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcibly upon Saul. Now, that's odd anyway. We already talked about that. You can catch up on podcasts as to why God would send an evil spirit to torment Saul. So we have a demonic spirit coming into the room and tormenting this king, making driving him into further paranoia. Look at the next line. He was prophesying in his house. Wait, what? So he's there talking about God and speaking about God and conveying God's will. He's doing all sorts of things. And we don't know if prophesying is the phrase in the Old Testament that means he was in some ecstatic trance. We don't know if it means he was just proclaiming the word of God. We don't even know what this means. But right in the middle of him out loud talking about God's stuff, A demon shows up, and what's David doing? Look, while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. Okay, that is odd, right? So here you have David kind of going, da-ling, da-ling, right? He's playing his little harp. And he's looking over, and Saul's just yelling out random stuff about God. And then all of a sudden, a demon hits him, and David's like, I don't know this song. What are we doing, dude? Where are you going with this, right? And he's just getting all weird and everything. And then look at the next phrase. And Saul had a spear in his hand. Why? Well, the whole time he's sitting there holding it, right? And he's like, I like this song, David. And he's like, all right. No, I'd like you to change the channel. You know, it's weird. Why is he holding on to his spear? That seems like an odd thing when you're in your own house. What you going to do with it? 
right? So he uses it. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. Okay, couple things weird. Number one, then what? Okay, what are you going to do when you nail him to the wall? I mean, if you want to kill the guy, just throw the spear at him. Don't try to nail him to the wall. Secondly, how confident is Saul in his spear throwing that he thinks he can hurl it across the room, nail a kid playing the harp by his clothes to the wall? Now, obviously, he's not as good as he thinks he is because he misses. But the bottom line is, what is he thinking? What does he want to do? Even if you do nail him to the wall, you already have a captive audience. What do you want with him? So it says, Saul had a spear in his hand. He hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. And the funniest line is next. But David eluded him what? Twice, (laughs) right? So it's literally (laughs) that he throws his spear at him. And David's like, what was that all about? And he's like, nothing. Play another song. (laughs) And he's like, well, now I'm not really comfortable playing the song because you threw a spear at me. No, no, no. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what you're talking about. Why don't you start that one again? And he's got a spear, and you're like, how many spears do you have by your throne, right? He grabs number two, right? And he's holding on, throws it again. David's like, fine, I'm out of here, right? I will let you throw a spear once, right? I'm not going to let you throw it twice. Look at this. The next phrase, Saul was afraid of David. Wait, who's throwing spears? Right? You think David's not afraid of Saul? Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaign. That's a very odd response. Hey, man, I tried to kill you, but I miss. Would you like to be in charge of a thousand men? You're like, well, okay, whatever. In everything he did, David had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. You're going to hear that phrase over and over. He's afraid of him. He's afraid of him. He's afraid of him. So he seeks to kill him. But all Israel and Judah love David because he led them in their campaigns. What tribe is David from? Judah. But it's not just his own team that loves him. It's the whole nation that loves him. Let me paraphrase a piece of this. What ends up happening next is that Saul decides, I got to get rid of this kid, but obviously I can't do it by my own hands. It's probably a good thing I missed with the spear thing because then everyone's going to get mad at me because he's a national war hero. So what we really need to do is get him killed by an enemy. That'd be excellent. We've been fighting the Philistines. They already hate me. So why don't we somehow get them to hate David even more? Right? He already killed their champion. They already don't like him. But how can we up the ante and get him killed? Oh, wait. I never gave him what I was supposed to give him for the win. Anybody remember the three things he was supposed to win by killing Goliath? Number one, tons of cash. Number two, his father's house was supposed to be free from taxes. And number three, what? A wife. The king's daughter. That was the agreement. Saul has not followed up on this for whatever reason. But now, because he has another plan in mind, he says, wait a second, my oldest daughter, Merib, she's ready to get married. If he becomes my son-in-law, then the Philistines will want to assassinate him merely because he's royalty. So now we can kill him. I'm going to give him to my daughter in marriage. Now, that's not good parenting. You don't use your daughters to try to get someone else killed. That's not polite. Right? This is not a very good father. Right? 
But he didn't account for David's humility. So sure enough, he says, hey, David, I want to give my daughter to you in marriage. Remember that whole Goliath thing? Well, anyway, I'd like to follow through on that. Would you be my son-in-law? And David said, you know what, sir? I appreciate the offer, but I can't do that. I'm a nobody. There's no way in the world I'm going to be able to pay the bride price, which back in that day, if you're going to get married, you paid the father a certain amount of money. For royalty, it was enormous. And he said, I can't afford it. And you know what? I don't deserve to be in your family, so no, sir, I'll pass. He didn't account for David's humility. So then Saul's like, oh, that didn't work out. Whatever, go marry her off to somebody else. All right. Then it says Saul's other daughter, Michael, loved David. And Saul went, hey, I got another shot. Now, I can't go to him directly. He'll turn me down. So I got to subvert this. So he tells his servants, hey, I need you to go talk to David. And I want you to convince him to marry into my family because I really want this. So his servants go out. Hey, Dave, come here for a second. Yeah, what's up? Saul really wants you as a son-in-law. Hey, I can't do that. I can't afford that. No, no, no. This whole scenario is different. Michael's totally into you. All right. So she wants to marry you. That's going to work out real well for you. Right. Yeah. Pretty good. huh? That's Michael. You remember her. Okay. Well, you know what? You don't have to buy anything because what Saul has asked for in bride price is a hundred foreskins. Wait, what? (laughs) Ew. Why? Was he got like a collection going on? What's happening? A hundred foreskins. Well, yeah, so if you go out and you get a hundred foreskins from the Philistines, because remember, they're the only guys that still have some. So if you go out and you go get those from the Philistines, then clearly they're dead because they're not just going to hand those over. So they're dead and we know they're Philistines. So he wants to avenge his enemies. Dude, you're a great warrior. You can do this, man. And David's like, yeah, (laughs) I don't know why he's even agreeing to this. This whole thing is weird, right? It says before the allotted time, David goes out and gets 200 of them. Okay, so he comes back and he brings them to Saul. Here you go, buddy. There's your bag. All right. Hands it over to him. Well, that didn't work out either. Saul's like, ah, I didn't think that. I thought he was going to die in battle. I didn't think this was going to work out. Well, sure enough, he's like, fine, I'll give you my daughter in marriage. And Michael's like, you bought me with what? Ew. That is the most least romantic thing I've ever heard. <laughs> this whole thing is weird. Are we all agreeing with this? Now watch this. It's really intriguing because there's a super sad element to all this if you want to look forward. And the super sad element of this is when David really wanted Bathsheba, what did he do? He used the same plan. How did he kill Uriah? Send him into battle. Where'd he learn that from? Last time someone tried to kill him. It's a bad role modeling gig. We pick it up in verse 28. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him. And he remained his enemy the rest of his days. Do you understand that Saul has lost the nation, the military, his son, and his daughter? They all love David more. And that's rough. It says, the Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. God is positioning him in an extraordinary way to take over the throne. Pick it up in verse 1, 19. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. 
Okay, now he's just going straight in. You guys, this whole trying to get the Philistines to do it obviously is not working. Let's just kill him ourselves. Somebody's got to take him out. I don't want this kid around anymore. But Jonathan, oh, the mole in the palace, Jonathan was very fond of David and he warned him. My father Saul's looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I'm going to go out. I'm going to stand with my dad in the field where you are and I'll speak to him about you and I'll tell you what I find out. Do you notice that God had someone on David's side? As much as the king tried to kill him, his own son was defending him. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. What he's done has benefited you greatly. He took his life into his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel. You saw it and you were glad. Dad, what are you doing? I thought this was about God's glory and victory for Israel. David's on our side, right? Saul doesn't see it like that. He forgot about the glory of God. He forgot about the big picture. He can only think of himself. But this day, Jonathan got through to him. This is very rare. Because as a king, even your son does not get to come challenge you morally. He does not get to tell you you're wrong. But he just did. Look at the next phrase. Saul listened to Jonathan. For whatever reason, God just bought David some time and softened Saul's heart. But then he took an oath. This is a mistake. You don't take an oath in Israel without involving God. And you don't promise something to God that you don't follow through on. Then he took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. He will change his mind in a heartbeat. So Jonathan, at this moment, while everything's cool, calls David, tells him the whole conversation, brings him to Saul. And David was with Saul as before. Says David continues in his victory with the Philistines, paraphrasing, and guess what happens? Well, I don't know. Saul, David is playing his harp in Saul's room again. Saul has a spear, of course. He throws it at him again. Literally, it replays itself all over again. David bails out and runs home. He's like, I can't handle this anymore. He runs into Michael. Your dad's trying to kill me. And she goes, you know what? We got to get you out of here. She lowers him down through a hole in the window and does a Ferris Bueller. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Now, what he, she does is she takes an idle head, puts it in the bed, puts goat hair on it and fake clothes and covers it with the covers. And so when the men come to arrest David, she goes, he's sick. They're like, what do you mean he's sick? I don't know. I saw him yesterday. He was fine. Well, he come down with something. He can't come talk to you right now. All right, so they go back to Saul. Saul, he's sick. We can't arrest him right now. Sick, we're going to kill him. Who cares? Go get his bed. Bring him over here. So they go, oh, good point. So the next day they go over and they're like, Michael, it doesn't matter if he's sick or not. The king has to see him right now and we got to come in. They burst through pastor. They pull the bed back and what? It's all fake, right? And so what do you think that's going to do to Saul? Wait, you lied? You lied to me and my men. That's called treason. I don't care if you're my daughter or not. What in the world do you think you're doing? What's her answer? David said he would kill me. David said he would kill me if I didn't go along with his plan. So you know what? I'm just an innocent party in all this. Saul's like, oh, well, okay then. Hmm. She's a pretty good liar. Real quick question. Why is there an idol in their house? 
Hmm, that's weird. Something's not right. Verse 18, when David fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel. Remember Samuel, the prophet of Israel, who used to be in charge, who bailed out on Saul, and they parted ways, and he told him all Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. So word gets back to Saul, hey, David's in Naoth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as a leader, the spirit of God came on Saul's men and they also prophesied. What? Next phrase. Saul was told about it. He sent more men. They prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time. They also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah, went to the great cistern at Secu, and he said, where's Samuel and David? Over at Naoth and Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even upon him as he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence, and he lay that way all that day and night, and that's why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? That's weird. Basically, here's what happens. I need to capture a guy. I'm sending in SEAL Team 1. Hey, guys, take him out, right? They go in. They come back. Well, what happened? We prophesied. You what? We prophesied. Why? I have no idea, man. It just all of a sudden came upon us, and we were just like, God says, blah, blah, blah. And you know what? Bob, I didn't even know that guy could prophesy. He's like, all right, all right, getting all struck. So I was like, what are you talking about? You're there to get rid of this guy. You're not there to prophesy. All right, SEAL Team 2, go. They run in. They come back. Well, where is he? I don't know, man. I was prophesying. <laughs> You're not a prophet. You're supposed to kill people. <sighs> Team 3, go. They come back. Where's David? Prophesying. <laughs> okay, what is wrong with my teams? Fine. If you need something done right, you do it yourself. I'll go. Doesn't even get there. Spirit of God comes upon him. He starts prophesying so intensely does he get caught up in what God's doing is he flat out walks in, takes off his robes, which is his uniform, which makes him king in front of God, strips it off. I'm no longer king at this moment, falls down before God and lays there all day and all night. Okay. What's the point in saying all this? If David is to be king, look at how extreme of lengths God will go to make that so. You can't shut it down. God will alter the universe. God will shift nature and supernature. God will move angels and demons. God will utilize his Holy Spirit. He will come up with plans you never even dreamed possible. Because if he wants to get you there, you're going to get there. And there's nothing you can do to kill it. There's nothing the enemy can do to kill it. There's nothing the world can do to kill it. Because God is sovereign over it all. Let me finish with this thought. We worry so much and have so much fear about what can go wrong in our ministries, what can go wrong in our lives, what can go wrong in our relationships. I worry about stuff like that. 
We fear the future and we think if things don't go right, right away, they're never going to go right. What about the big plan? Maybe I missed everything. Breathe. God is in control. Always has been. Always will be. And if there is something he needs you to do for him, no one or nothing can get in his way. Because God's will will be done. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Fill us with your trust and your faith that we might believe you for what you say. That, Father, when your word says that you are not only the author, the beginner of our faith, but you are the perfecter, the one who closes the deal, allow us to believe that. Lord, your word says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Help us to believe that too. We submit our lives to you, and when we look at our own lives and resources, we doubt. Father, help us to get our eyes off ourselves, get them off the world, and get them back where they need to be, on you. May you be praised and glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.